All right, guys, good to see you. Um, here we are again, uh, j- just like Neil said a minute ago, happy Father's Day if the shoe fits. I feel like it's shout-out time. We've got to give a shout-out to Abraham here today. His name is the father of many nations, so let's give it up for Abraham, all right? Because according to this, he's your dad. Didn't know if you knew that, so uh, ask questions on that. Last day, guys, it's the finale. Final week of questions you never thought you could ask in church. For those of you here who are initiated, you know what's about to take place. For those of you here who are uninitiated, here's how it works. I want to invite you right now to take this out. In about 30 seconds, I am going to flash a cell number on the screen. And what we are inviting you to do is text in anonymously any question you have on God, the Bible, church, its intersection with life, fellowship of faith, Christian theology, you get the idea here, right? I love how Neil framed this. The heretical, the weird, God give us the courage, it's all okay. And what I'm going to do is try to answer him on the spot. Give you as straightforward and honest and clear an answer as I possibly can in a short period of time. If you've texted a question in in the last two weeks, I'm hitting it today, don't worry, I've got them. Um, So we'll get to that in a moment, but start texting in here shortly. Um, I showed you this for two weeks in a row. This is week three. It's worth reading one more time. This is the spirit of what we're doing today. That resonates deep with me. I hope it does with you today as well. So here's the number. 815-314-0363. 815-3140-FOF. You can start texting in. And uh, while you're doing some of that, I am going to bet cleanup from last week, all right? So, let's see. How was God created if there was nothing to create him? You're assuming God was created. He was not. Will Roman Catholic priests... You're assuming God was created. He was not. Uh, I I can't really give you more than that on that one, all right? Um, um, Yeah, the, the Bible will talk about God as being from the beginning, eternal. What does that mean for our human conception of time? What does that mean that there's a being in this world that's that powerful, that is from the beginning, if such a thing even exists? I don't know. I don't know. But it's one of the cool things, and, and shall I say, one of the unique things about God. Do you know how like, God is God and you're not? If you were created, you're not. Okay? Just kind of a good litmus test to take every once in a while. This is an interesting one. Will Roman Catholic priests be allowed to marry in the foreseeable future? You know, I, I, I doubt it. My Catholic theology is a bit rusty, so I'm hesitant to give a matter-of-fact answer, but from the people that study this and the people I've talked to and what I've read, the nature of the declaration of of male-only priesthood is so embedded in the encyclicals and papal rulings and councils that it has become theologically rooted, not just a practice of the times. And for the Catholic Church to reverse that would be to send shockwaves through their theology of how God's Spirit supposedly speaks truth through the traditions of the church. Are you following the the issue here? So for that reason, what I have been told is that nowhere in the foreseeable future will the priesthood, maybe other areas of service, but the priesthood be open to 
um, either female ordination or to priests being able to get married or other such things. But we've been wrong before. We'll see what happens. Great one. So how about this? If the Old Testament was all handwritten and it took years to write, how could so many Jewish scholars have had copies? It's a fantastic question, and the answer is actually um, more, more simple than you'd think, because so many were so devoted to it that they gave their lives to getting copies. The painstaking labors they would take to procure a copy, even if they had to make it themselves, even going through the litmus tests that if there was more than one error from the original, it was burned. Can you imagine, like, handwriting Isaiah, and then someone looking at it, and then going, no, I'm sorry, there's a, a typo here in line 432. I mean, just talk about a career track that you wish you didn't take. <laughs> but it's fascinating to me how much the Jewish people loved the text. For them, it was the presence of God. Have you ever wished, and you don't have to show hands, but have you ever wished God was near? Have you ever gone seeking God, searching for God? Have you ever just desired to hear that word from God for them? It's like God, God is right here. Not that this is God, but you know what I mean, right? Great one. Is there a different heaven for Jews, Hindu, Islamic, Shinto, I think we can put etc. after that, religions. Um, no. No, there is one earth, there is one heaven, there is one hell, there is one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ, regardless of your background or tradition. Um, sincerity of belief is not what gets you to heaven. I am quite convinced that there are many Buddhists and Shintos and Hindus in this world that have far greater faith than I do. Unfortunately, their faith is in the wrong thing. Because it's not the quality of your faith that ultimately matters, though it matters, as much as what you're trusting in. And finally, if the Hebrew people don't believe in Christ, there would not be a year of B.C. or A.D. Then what year is it in their religion? Actually, if you read um, contemporary Jewish scholars, they will talk about B.C.E., and C-E, which basically means before the common era and common era. And it's kind of in vogue in certain scholarly circles, but it's never really caught on in the mainstream. And the irony is it dates exactly the same way as B.C. and A.D. does. So it's really just kind of a way of them going, oh, does it have to be in our face every time? You know what I mean? Um, that's how they do it. Uh, next question. What would the world be like if Jesus was alive today? You know, Jesus is alive today. Uh, and I understand where you're coming from, but you've got to go with me. See, the, the heart and soul of Christianity is that Jesus rose from the dead. And I think a lot of people hear that. But what they think is they think that he died and somehow his spirit went up to heaven or something like that. And that is not what Christian theology is about or what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is body died, body came back. That Jesus is physical, alive, a beating heart, 
flowing blood, growing hair. Does Jesus have to get a haircut? I don't know, but he is alive. He is a living, breathing being. Well, how is he in heaven? I don't know. I don't know. He's Jesus. He can do that kind of thing. How do people walk in space? They can make it happen, right? He is alive, and he will return. But I am going to reframe the question now slightly, because maybe what you intended or what you were... uh, um, thinking about when you ask this is, what if Jesus were physically here on the earth today walking among us? What would the world be like? Honestly, I don't think it would be any different. I don't think it would be different one bit because when Jesus walked 2,000 years ago on this earth, a small group of people in Palestine followed him. People in China didn't know about him. India, Syria, Egypt. I mean, he was popular, but he was popular like a boy band's popular, you know, kind of sweeps an area, but, but, you know, people followed him as long as his hair was cute, and he did things they liked, and then they dumped him the minute he started changing. And I think we in America assume that if Jesus was walking the earth today, he would be walking in the United States. Or would he be some unknown person in Bangladesh that we never heard of and wouldn't give the time of day to because we're America, darn it. What matters is here. Know what I mean? Good question. How do you love yourself without getting proud? You ever wrestle with that one? Some people it comes very naturally to. But there's a lot of people I've met who have had drilled into them from an early time that pride is a sin. Have you ever heard that that pride is a sin? It is. But for some people, it has gotten so expansive as if to mean, I shouldn't think well of myself, I shouldn't be good at anything, I should never do a good job, and I should never be happy about what I've accomplished or achieved. And that's as far from the biblical truth as you can get. I think of the, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And Jesus says the second is like it. You know what it is? Love your neighbor as yourself. Have you ever thought about the fact that you're supposed to love your neighbor as, as yourself? You're not going to love other people if you don't love yourself. Not in the way God is calling you to. And if your love for yourself is down here, guess what? You are at a substandard level of how God wants you to love. So what I encourage you is, I bet if you ask this, a 30-second answer is not going to, to walk you through the psychological baggage. A lot of us have been there. Come talk to me. Let's talk and pray, but I want to challenge you to start saying, I'm a created child of God. I want to challenge you to start saying, God, God made me in his image, and that's pretty stinking amazing, and I honor him when I bring that image out to the fullest. Does that make sense? Start teasing that out in your life, but let's talk from there. Next one. Um, Is masturbation a sin? Is masturbation a sin? You know, I think masturbation is like a lot of things in this world in the sense that the Bible does not specifically speak to it with a hardcore yes or a hardcore no. 
Like a lot of things, God gives us a gift called sexuality, gives us many gifts, and it can be used to glorify him, and it can be used um, in ways that don't. And the Bible is silent on this one, which means like a lot of things in life, what it takes is a lot of soul check. It takes a lot of introspection. What's driving this? What's repla- what am I replacing with this? Right? What am I thinking about and what am I doing when I do this? It's very interesting in the spirit of being very open and honest. Um, Martin Luther, who our church gets their name after, actually would counsel people to masturbate um, in certain situations. Yeah, now you want to go read Luther's writings, right? Um, but I've known people, and it's not just a 14-year-old issue in this world who have found more intimacy with themselves than with their spouse. And and there's something wrong in that. Because God fundamentally called you to be one with him or one with her. Again, these are 30-second answers, and and I'm just trying to give you an overlay. If this is something that you're wrestling with deeply um, or struggling with, hey, safe place. It's called Vegas in my office. What's said there stays there. And... uh, and I would love to help, help you through this a little bit and, and talk to you a little bit more. Okay? Next one. Does God judge people differently when they die and go to heaven? Um, and, and specifically, I mean, is a child judged the same as a horrific murderer? We can use that as an example, but we don't even have to go that far. The short answer is yes. God does judge people differently when they die and go to heaven. And God does judge people differently when they die and go to hell. Two passages I'll key you into. Here's the heaven one. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Read it sometime. What it basically says, and it's talking about the last day more than heaven, but just we'll make that translation. It's talking about that when, when, when Christ returns, all of us will stand before him to be judged. And, ooh, get a shiver on this one. The quality of our work will be shown for what it is. And those, to quote the biblical metaphor, who have built in God's house, not meaning the church, but this world, who have done his work building with like gold and silver, it'll shine in that day. And those who have built with straw and chaff, it will be burned up, and they will escape as one just barely dodging the flames. Yes, there is a strong sense throughout the Bible that different levels of, what's the word? Glory, reward, praise, honor. None of them quite do it right exactly. will be meted out by God. And on the other hand as well, God talks about how those who will be judged towards hell Some will be beaten with few blows. Some will be beaten with many blows. You could find this in in the Gospel of Luke. I just encourage you to read it on your own, but the short answer, again, is yes. So take your life seriously. It has eternal consequence. I have read stories about Nephilim, and that time period of the Bible is vague. Yes, it is. Can the Nephilim come back present day. If you don't know what this is referring to, it's, uh, 
It's referring to this very odd passage in, in Genesis chapter 6, where it would talk about how the sons of God and the daughters of men, whatever that means, were intermarrying and, and their offspring were these heroes of old that did this great thing. And, 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 and later Jewish writings took a hold of this and, and, and wrote kind of like these, these science fiction novels based on it that made their way into the movie Noah, actually, about nine months ago. And um, what is this about? It's weird stuff. Your question was, can they come back in present day? A, depending on your interpretation, they might be here in present day. But if your interpretation is otherwise, can it happen? Well, sure. In God's plan, I think anything can happen. Nothing says it can't. So that's the best I can give you without going into so much arcana. Oh my gosh, on that. Here's one. Doesn't it seem selfish and or unfair that God created us to love him? with hell as a threat if we don't, and heaven as a reward if we do. My answer to that is, is I think that if you think that God created you for, for, dangling, for the purpose of dangling two carrots of heaven and hell before you, that's God's purpose in creating you, you have got a whacked out version of God in your mind. That is not why God created you. And the assumptions I think that you're bringing to this question, I'm sorry to be harsh, but I, but I need to be direct on this one. If those are your assumptions of God, you do not have the right understanding of God, not the God that's presented in the Bible anyway. God did not create you as a lab experiment to see which path in the maze you would choose. That is not his purpose for you. That is not his motivation. That is not his character. Um, so yeah, I, I would encourage you not to go that way. What about the people who, past and present, haven't heard of Jesus Christ? How do they experience God, and what does faith mean for them? I'm going to give you the New Testament answer to that one. Be consumed with telling them. This is how the New Testament answers the question. It doesn't approach it philosophically going, what happens to the people who live in such and such a country who never got to hear of Jesus Christ? Here's how Paul and Jesus answer it. Go tell them, darn it. That's why I created you. I created you, among other things, to be a bearer of good news. You, by virtue of sitting here today, have something so good. You know something that vast portions of this population don't know, are confused about, have been lied to about, and the Bible calls it good news. Have you ever just had like news that you just you could not wait to like get on the phone with your friend or get home to tell your spouse about or, or get together with your buddies? Like you you gotta you gotta hear what happened to me. You ever have those moments? That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is intended to be for a believer. And I think we have become more comfortable philosophizing about what happens to those who don't hear as opposed to being driven with a passion and burning gut to do something about it. So I'm going to leave that one right there. Now this one is great. Why does FOF keep their drummer in a box? <laughs> Thank you.
because he's a wild man. <laughs> I'm also told that he spits and bites, but that's another... Uh... <laughs> All right, how about this? In the Old Testament, it was death to look upon the face of God. When we get to heaven, do you think we will finally see his face, or is he just too holy to have that kind of access to him? You know, the gut Christian reaction is to always paint the pictures and sing the songs and discuss it in such a way that you will actually see his face. I'm not going to push it too far, but I will say this. There are times it talked about how Moses would speak with God face to face, as with a friend, although it was the same God who told Moses, you can't look upon my face and live. I know 2,000 years ago, people looked upon the face of Jesus and didn't burst into flames. So that's terribly good news. Would you agree? I'm going off into speculative country at this point. I think that when resurrection comes, we will experience something in the presence of God that is so beyond our imagination that we can't even conceive of it right now of seeing what he's like. But I also think God is so infinite beyond that that we can spend two eternities in creation and still have only glimpsed a fraction of who the living God truly is. I think most people think of eternity as being boring because we're there. Now what do we do? May I encourage you to think of eternity as an endless relationship with one you are madly in love with, constantly discovering more every day. And I think maybe there we start to skim the surface of what it'll be like. Rock on question there. So, why do you, uh, what do you say to someone who says dating is not biblical? You say, you're wrong. <laughs> In sincerity, these kinds of things happen a lot. People love to proof text. And it just gives you hives, doesn't it? Some people are quick to rush to, show me where it says that. And sometimes they can kind of pull something. What I encourage you is this. Do you have a relationship with this person? And I don't mean a romantic one per se, but you know what I mean? Do you have a connection with this, with this person? Don't talk. Listen. Just simply say, you know, I never really got that understanding out of the Bible. Tell me why you think it says that and, and, and why you think that's the case. And see what they have to say. At the end of the day, you actually might learn something. They might bring something to the conversation that you would have just dismissed. And at the end of the day, you might not agree. But you've got a friend in Christ, and isn't that even more important in a way? Christians, you need to hear this. It is okay to disagree. Those of you who are married, do you ever disagree with your spouse? There was a... Yeah, not according to her, I heard, and... Yeah, I like breathing. There was a woman way back there that was way too eager to answer the question. Um, let's at least approach this theoretically. Is there anyone that you love more in this world than your spouse? I know not all the time. Don't go that way, all right? But you know what I'm saying? 
Christians, love doesn't mean lockstep agreement. And it's okay to see things different way, but what's important is how we treat each other in those disagreements. With all the evidence out there, why do Jews feel Jesus was not the Messiah? It was even a bigger screaming question in the first century A.D., Back then, it was because their presuppositions, do you know this word? Their assumptions of life, their underlying assumptions and beliefs and worldview did not allow them to take this new evidence and make it click. Because none of us here are truly rational beings. You know what I mean? We don't approach life and the things that we see in this life as though we're clear states just honestly weighing the facts. All of us have motivations, drives underlying assumptions that filter everything we hear, read, and see. And if you're already convinced of A, B will always be filtered through that lens. And so for many Jews, it just didn't fit their worldview. How could God's Messiah, who's supposed to be this, look like that? It just didn't click. Now let's throw one more log on the fire. We are assuming that faith is a rational choice. I don't believe it is. I, uh, it's not often you'll hear me quote Luther's small catechism. But there is actually a blurb that I love where he writes, I cannot by my own reason or strength come to believe in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. We are held in bondage to sin. That is corruption of the soul, corruption of the heart, corruption of the will, corruption of the mind. And without the Holy Spirit land-blasting us, our inclination is never to believe. So it's not just a Jewish problem. It's a universal one. And thanks be to God for a Holy Spirit. Amen? And this fundamentally is why blaspheming the Holy Spirit is such a big deal. Because if it's the Holy Spirit who brings you to faith, to reject the Holy Spirit's work in your life is to ultimately sever yourself from conversion, transformation, and faith. And that's why it's called unforgivable. Next question. If jealousy is a sin... How can we have a jealous God? It's a fantastic question and it can come up on so many other tracks. I was having this great conversation with, with my son Ben the other day. If, if murder is a sin, how can God strike people down? We can apply this in, in a thousand different ways. Parents, do you have rules for your kids that you don't abide by? Does that make you a terrible human being? Or does that put you in the wrong? Well, yeah, some of you it does. You following me? Does it put you in the wrong? To have rules for your creation that you don't follow. It's fundamentally that simple on a lot of these things. Now, let me talk about the jealousy thing because it's often misunderstood. When it says God is a jealous God, it doesn't mean he's going around trying to hoard treasure and steal your stuff. All right? 
When God says he's a jealous God, do you know what the context always is that he is jealous for? You, your devotion, your loyalty, your commitment, your love, boyfriends and girlfriends. Is it wrong to want your boyfriend or girlfriend to be faithful to you and you alone? Spouses, would you agree? Jealousy, as we often define it, is not always a sin. See what I mean? Always contextualize your language. Let me catch up here. Okay. Ah, I got this. How can you explain how man, humanity, in the Old Testament, could men live hundreds of years? That's, that's what I read. Here's what it means. If you go before Noah's flood, it gives genealogies from the time of Adam to the time of Noah. Have you ever like read these? Uh, no, because it's a genealogy, I know. But have you ever thought about reading these? Um, have you ever seen the lifespans put on it? Hundreds of years. Now, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't explain how this works. Like, if you want the genetic engineering behind this, I can't help you. But there's a couple theological themes that come out that make sense. See, God comes in and intervenes again at the time of Noah and says, the wickedness of men is so great, in part because of the Nephilim, by the way, the wickedness of men is so great that I am cutting the lifespan short to a hundred some odd years, 120 years. I believe it says. So it's like God never intended humanity to die. Did you know that? You were never supposed to die. The pain you feel when someone dies in your life, God never intended you. You are not built to go through that. And even when God gave the punishment of death in Genesis 3, it was like he was pushing it far back as possible. He was staving it off as long as possible. You will die, but it might be a millennium. Methuselah lives to be 969 years. How did aging work? How did aging slow down? Were they like 80 years old and like how we are when we're 80? Or were they like 600 in the prime of their life? I'm more inclined to think it was that way. That God somehow and in some way staved entropy off. And the image that helps me the best you guys know Lord of the Rings? Do you know the elves? See, J.R.R. Tolkien was a devout Catholic, and a lot of his writing drew on biblical themes. In my opinion, the elves give the best picture of what that pre-flood humanity was like. Elrond, Lord Elrond was 3,000 years old, and I'm like, I wish I could look that good. And life was meant to be an increasing pace of growing in wisdom, maturity, understanding, and benefiting this world. But because it got so corrupt, because we are so messed up, God said, it ain't going that way. Cut it off at 120 years because we need a safety valve from what the wicked people are doing in this world. Ouch. Right? Next question. What are your thoughts on celebrating the summer solstice or any day? You know, it's like everything. Um, If you're enjoying the day as a gift of God because it's the longest day of the year, rock on, go for it. If you're lighting bonfires to the sun god tonight, 
in engaging in pagan blood rituals to celebrate it? Let's talk. Okay? What are ways we experience spiritual warfare in everyday life? In about a month, I'm doing a message, a one-shot on spiritual attack. I encourage you to watch our, our pubs and come to it. Let me just say this for now. I think spiritual attack is an everyday occurrence in our world today. Spiritual warfare is ongoing reality. And it is far different looking than what most people think. Most people hear spiritual warfare and they, they, they expect like manifestations of demons to start appearing. They expect the, the, the walls to start creaking and blood to start coming down and, and, and to feel apparitions and, and, and unholy presences and things. And that, that can happen, I suppose. But when I think of how God says to resist the schemes of the devil, he talks about things like this. Righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, truth, obedience. That's where the devil's going to attack you. The devil doesn't have to make a floating specter head appear. But if you can find the chinks in your armor, in your integrity, in your faithfulness, in your righteousness, in your obedience, those are the places he will stick the knife. And this is why it is so important to stay true and obedient to God and not give him that opening. Is Mark really older than dirt? Um, oh, I mean 47 today. Uh, just calling him as I get him. Are you 47? Mark is 47 today. <laughs> All right. Could or would God manifest a soul into an, into an artificially intelligent program or robot? Um... That's wild, man. <laughs> you know, 20 years ago, everyone would say, like, no, off the bat. We are coming into a strange new age of cloning and hybrids and who knows what's on the horizon. And it will be interesting to see how philosophers and theologians begin to write about this. Christian theology, for the past roughly 2,000 years, has not, contrary to what a lot of you think, thought about the soul as being something reproduced by God. As though your parents get around the busy work of getting the physical you going, and then God implants a soul. Christian theology, actually, for the 2,000 years, says that when you procreate, your soul is procreated as well. Because your parents are holistic beings. They aren't just physical matter. They're not just a bag of chemistry. They're a soul as well. That your soul is not pre-existent, pre-eternal. And that when you engage in the process of bringing a human life into this world, it truly means that, a human life, not just a human body. So how can that work in all kinds of strange ways with cloning? And will clones have souls? Quite possibly so. And in and, and most theologians today who are starting to write on the fringe are even arguing that way. How might that go into cyborgs as well? We'll jump there when we get there, all right? After the resurrection, there will be no death. How will we eat beef? <laughs> you know, when God created Adam and Eve, um, 
for all intents and purposes, it seems that he created them vegetarian. Um, you don't see the slaughtering of animals and the eating of meat explicitly mentioned until later in the text. However, when Jesus rose from the dead, he ate fish. I was going to be curious to see. In relation to the gospel, is it more important to be nice or to be right? How about in general? You are trying to force a distinction that the Bible will not make. The Bible says, speak the truth in love. You don't get to choose. You have to do both all the time, no matter what. No matter how much you don't want to hurt a feeling. No matter how much you like them. No matter how much you hate them. No matter how much your ego depends on being right. No matter how much your pride is on the line. You can't split hairs. You gotta do both. And finally, do you believe in resurrection? As in God sends us back to relive a life until we learn how to love and live the way he wants us to. What you just, I do believe in resurrection, but what you just described is reincarnation. And those are vastly different things. Resurrection is about coming back to life, truly physically, but you still come back as you. But according to the Gospels, you come back transformed, renewed, body, soul, the evil inclinations, the corruption, the glasses, the bum knee. <sighs> Kiss it all goodbye. You don't come back to redo it, to somehow prove yourself again or learn life's lessons that you missed the first time down the block. You come back because that's always been God's intention for you, to live forever. And we live where God's plan is not manifested right now. Yesterday, I just buried someone. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But he'll come back, raised, not to do it over, to live in the Lord's presence forever how it was always supposed to be. I am out of time. I'm looking at the clock, and I am just out of time. To those of you whose questions I've been able to get to, I mean, seriously, I just hope they were helpful. I hope somehow it, it, it's helped you take a next step. And I hope it's raised more questions for you. A good answer should always raise a few more questions because God is simply that deep. To those of you, if, if I was unable to get to one in these last few weeks and it's burning and it's nagging, I got good news. I have email. All right? Shoot it to me because I don't know who it's from. Shoot it to me. Tackle me after church today, literally or metaphorically. I would be happy to help speak into that. And to all of you, never stop asking. Seek God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And whatever nagging doubts, whatever fears might be there, know that God is bigger than you. And he'll carry you through. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. 
This is my body given for you. And he took a cup and he gave it to them and he said, drink of this, all of you. My blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. I want to invite you to rise. Apostles' Creed, great words, great prayer. I like it. I hope you do too. Pray it with me.